Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. To the book of 1 John, and we are in chapter 2 of the book of 1 John. We'll be looking at verses 18 through 23. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a white paperback Bible under a seat in front of you. You find John by finding Revelation and just turn back a few pages and you'll find 1 John. Last week, there was um, the results of a study released, um, a study on the influence of fake news. Now, I know uh, a lot of you have been hearing about fake news. Probably most of you know about this phenomenon, fake news, that uh, there are people who are preparing stories that are incorrect with the intention of deceiving. And this study was conducted to see how much fake news is really prevalent on social media, and the results were pretty alarming. There was an article in The Atlantic on this. The studies were reported in Science Magazine. And they found that false stories are more likely to go viral than true stories. They found that falsehoods were 70% more likely to be retweeted than true stories. If you don't know what retweeted means, you'll have to ask a millennial, and they'll probably tell you. They found that fake news and false rumors actually reach more people than true stories, according to this poll. And they summed it up like this, false stories outperform truth on every subject. That is really troubling, isn't it? Now, they explained in the article kind of how they came to these decisions, but it brought the... um, Uh, the people who conducted this study to ask this question, what is truth? Isn't that fascinating? I mean, maybe you recognize that question. It's in the Bible, you know, when Pontius Pilate was questioning Jesus Christ and Pontius Pilate himself asked, what is truth? And that's a question that a lot of people are asking now because of the prevalence of false news. What is truth? How can we tell the difference between what is right and what is wrong. And if this is the case in social media and politics and in our culture, I want to suggest to you this morning that it is also the case in the spiritual world. That is that there is false news out there about God, about Jesus, about what you have to do to be saved, about who you are, about who Jesus is and what he has done and the significance of that. There is false news out there about that. And just as this study about false news and social media is helping us to be aware of that so our ears can be open and we can be attentive, I want to suggest that the word of God commands us to do the very same thing in the area of spirituality as we hear reports and opinions and perspectives about who God is. Is. We are in a sermon series on 1 John, and um, in chapter 2, let me just point your attention to verse 26. This isn't actually in the passage that we're studying today, but it kind of sums up what the passage is about. Verse 26 of chapter 2, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. And that's what false news is about. It's an attempt to deceive And John is concerned about this as he writes this letter to 
his readers. He, he is aware that there are deceivers among them. He, he's concerned that they are in danger. He is, he is worried that they might be led astray. And so he writes these things to us here in verses 18 to 23. Now, you might recall that uh, I've said this a couple of times that what John has been doing here in chapter two in particular is giving diagnostic tests by which we can take a spiritual inventory of ourselves and evaluate really where we are in relationship to God. Now these are not tests that we're to perform in order to earn our salvation. These are just tests that allow us to examine ourselves to see if there is evidence of true salvation in our lives. And so we've covered these first two already. There was a moral test, chapter two, one through six. John was saying anybody who says he loves God but doesn't have any interest in obeying him, that person is, is a liar. That's the moral test. And then there was a social test where John said that um, uh, we are called to love our brothers and love our sisters and the person who says he walks in the light but hates his brother and sister, that person actually walks in the darkness, that person is deceived. And now we get today to the doctrinal test the doctrinal test, starting here in verse 18 and through the rest of this chapter. And John writes this, so that we can be discerning as we listen to those who are, um, who are putting forth certain messages about God and the gospel, so that we might be equipped to tell the difference between truth and error. So please stand for the reading of God's word. First John chapter two, starting with verse 18, and we'll go up to verse 23 and then pick up with verse 24 next week. <clears throat> John says this, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. And then let me read verse 26 just again. I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. God in heaven, would you please open our hearts and minds to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> okay, so John has in mind some people um, among his readers who are attempting to deceive. And so this is what we're going to talk about today. We're going to consider who, what, and how. Who are these deceivers? What do they teach? And how do they behave? So first of all, who are the deceivers that John has in mind? So let's start here with verse 18. He says, children, it is the last hour. Now, what does that mean, the, the last hour? Um, 
Sometimes you'll see in the Bible references to the last days. These are basically synonymous, the last hour and the last days. And most often when we think of the last hour, the last days, we generally think of this as being a period of time right before Jesus comes again. Very often we think of it as a time that is future to us, near the battle of Armageddon, near the very end of history. But you'll notice here that John is speaking in the present tense. Children, it is the last hour. And we get some help on this from Hebrews chapter 1, which I just quoted to the children just a moment ago. Long ago, at many times, and in many place, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So here's the writer of the Hebrews in the first century saying that the last days have already started. And that seems to be what John is saying here also. In this, it is the last hour. So the last hour is a reference to that period of time between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. That's the time in which we live right now. This is the period of time that reflects the very last stage of God's dealing with mankind. That's what last hour means. I mean, when you think of all the other major redemptive events when God announced to um, Eve that a descendant was going to come and crush the head of the serpent and God came and called Abraham and he formed the nation of Israel and God gave the law to Israel, delivered them um, first from Egypt and then sent the prophets to them and made a covenantal relationship with them and then they were exiled and then returned to the land and then finally the Messiah came in the person of Jesus Christ. He lived, died and was resurrected and the Holy Spirit then on the day of Pentecost was sent and the church then began to grow and flourish as the gospel went forth. All of those things are past. There is one last event that we're waiting for to finish God's redemptive plan, and that is the second coming of Christ. There's just one more thing left. Now, we don't know when that's going to happen, but that's what John is saying here by last hour. Everything is finished except for the coming of Christ again. Now, John says, here's how we know it's the last hour. Again, in verse 18, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, So now many antichrists have come, therefore we know it is the last hour. So John is saying, here's how we know we're in the last hour, because of the presence of antichrists. Now, that's a word that probably most of you are familiar with, the antichrist, and all sorts of ideas might come to mind when you think of that word. Very often we think of kind of a notorious evil figure Uh, a a very sinister person um, who is going to come one day and wreak havoc on the land and wreak havoc on the church. Um, But it's interesting to see what John says here about the Antichrist. I mean, there's a, a few things he says that might be surprising. First of all, he says this. He says there's not just one Antichrist, but many. Do you see that? Now, many Antichrists. Have come. You know, all throughout history, there have been predictions about who the one Antichrist is going to be. I mean, in the first century, they thought it was Nero. And um, when Muhammad came on the scene several centuries later, people thought Muhammad was the Antichrist. During the Reformation, Martin Luther and John Calvin thought the Pope 
was the Antichrist. And Catholics at the time thought Martin Luther was the Antichrist. And during the Civil War, a lot of people thought Abraham Lincoln was the Antichrist. And even when President Ronald Reagan was in office, some people creatively remembered that his middle name was Wilson, Ronald Wilson Reagan. Each of those words has six letters. And they put it together, 666, and thought Ronald Reagan is the Antichrist. And so this has been going on for all of history. People obsessed with who is the Antichrist. But again, what John here is saying is many Antichrists have come. Now, it's true there will be, I think, a final Antichrist because it says you've heard that Antichrist singular is coming. In 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul talks about the man of lawlessness who is coming. And so there is going to be one final notorious antichrist but in the meantime there are many antichrists this is john writing in the first century and he said antichrists were already present in the first century and they've been present ever since then not just one antichrist but many but then john also tells us that there's not just a future antichrist but that they are present now and so you see um, this past tense it is the last hour and as you have heard that antichrist is coming so now many antichrists have come they're already here these many antichrists are already at work on the earth i mean an example of an antichrist um, would be adolf hitler and a lot of people of course thought that he was the final antichrist obviously we know that he's that he's that he wasn't but but he was an antichrist and here's an example of, of how we know this. I mean, uh, Adolf Hitler required all the pastors in Germany at the time to take an oath of allegiance to him. He required all the pastors to promise faithfulness and obedience to Adolf Hitler. And amazingly, a lot of pastors complied with that. A lot of pastors did it. But here's what Hitler did later. He went to um, a place called Wartburg Castle, which is where Martin Luther translated the Greek New Testament into German in 1521. So it's a very sacred place for Protestants and for Lutherans in particular in Germany. Hitler went into that church, took the cross off the top of the church and put a swastika on top of it and then put floodlights below to shine up on the swastika for all to see the swastika displacing the cross of Jesus. That's what antichrists do, and that's what Hitler did. So he was one of these many antichrists. What the scriptures would tell us, if you go all the way back to John, excuse me, to Genesis 3.15, right after the fall, God spoke to the serpent, and he said to the serpent that there's a descendant that's gonna come from the woman, that descendant is gonna crush your head, serpent, he is going to overcome the powers of Satan. But what's going to happen in the meantime? God says, I'm going to place enmity between the woman and the serpent. For all of history, there's going to be hostility between God and his plan to produce a savior to save a people and Satan and his hatred and constant opposition to that plan. And all of human history has basically been an example of that drama taking place. God versus Satan. God's promise to send a Messiah and Satan's hatred for that Messiah. 
And that's why we have, as Jesus has come in fulfillment of that, Antichrist now spring up in the immediate aftermath of the coming of Christ, and they have been present and will continue to be present until Jesus comes again. And so, friends, I'm telling you this, and John is telling us this, so that you're aware that this is the world in which we live. We live in a fallen world. We live in a world of people who want to deceive you. We're living in a world full of people who don't want you to trust Jesus. They want to dupe you. They want to lead you astray. They want to deceive you. They want to deceive your children. They want to deceive your friends. They want to deceive your brothers and sisters at New Life. That's the work of the Antichrist. And it's going on today. And the best way, the first step to being able to recognize them is to simply acknowledge that they exist and to be alert and to beware. Now, we, we might say, well, how do we tell what an antichrist is? How do we tell these deceivers? How do we know what they're, uh, how do we know how to identify them? And John goes on to give us two ways. We can identify them through their beliefs and through their behavior. So th- those are the second two points. What do the deceivers believe? Okay, we see this um, throughout the rest of this passage. Now, there's, there's two important doctrinal points here. So you're going to have to uh, stick with me here as we go through some kind of doctrinal information. There are two things that characterize Antichrist deceivers. First of all, they deny the divinity of Christ. Look at verse 22. Verse 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Now, you see that phrase a lot, Jesus is the Christ. What does that actually mean? Well, there was um, a book called the Septuagint. Uh, Many centuries before Jesus came, the Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, a lot of people didn't read Hebrew, so it was translated into Greek. And there's a Greek word called Christos that was used to translate the Hebrew word for Messiah. So in the Septuagint, whenever the word for Messiah comes up in the Greek, it appeared as Christos. And so when John says, whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ, this is what he's referring to, this idea that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus Christ. Christ was not his last name. Christ was a way of identifying Jesus as the Messiah. Now, that doesn't necessarily suggest that Jesus was divine, but but here's what happened. When Jesus came into this world, born in a manger, and began to um, perform miracles and teach, it became very clear that he was identifying himself as the Messiah, the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah. But Jesus went further and did something that maybe a, a lot of people weren't expecting, and that is that he didn't only identify himself as the Messiah, but identified himself as God, God in the flesh. He said in John 14 to Philip, he said, Philip, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. He was speaking to the Pharisees, and he said, before Abraham was born, I am. I am. That's the phrase that the God of the Old Testament used to describe himself in Exodus chapter 3. And Jesus uses it to describe him. He says, before Abraham was born, I am. 
a very clear claim to divinity. The Jews took up rocks to stone him in response to that because they knew what he was saying. He's claiming to be God. And so Jesus came not just as the Messiah, but after his coming, we see that this is God himself coming as our Messiah. And there's even more about this where it says in verse 22, this is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. So that's an implicit reference to the divinity of Christ as well. I mean, just like a human father, when um, his wife gives birth to a child, we always expect that child to be human. Children born to human parents are human. And in the same way, the son who comes from the father, we expect to be every bit as divine as the father. And these false teachers are denying that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, but also denying that Jesus is the Son, denying his divinity. Now, I know that might seem like we're really kind of digging to get that out, the divinity of Christ, but there's plenty of other places in the scriptures where it's very clearly stated. In fact, at the end of this letter, 1 John 5, John says this, we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. So, if you're not convinced by my arguments up to this point, that this verse should be pretty clear. The divinity of Christ, but here's what the deceivers do. They deny that Jesus is the Son, they deny that he is the Messiah, and they deny that he is divine. But it's not just the divinity of Christ that they deny, it's also the humanity of Christ. These deceivers and antichrists deny the humanity of Christ. Now we gotta go forward to 1 John chapter four to get this, because it's not in our passage. But here's what it says in chapter, chapter four, verses two and three. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God, this is the spirit of the antichrist. The one who denies that Jesus has come in the flesh. Now remember, I've been telling you about Gnosticism, right? The, the false teachers that John is concerned about, most scholars believe, were Gnostic, and that just means that they thought physical matter was evil. And if physical matter is evil, that means bodies are evil. And if bodies are inherently evil, there's no way that God himself could take on a body. And so a lot of the Gnostics were saying, Jesus is a man, that means he can't be God because no God would become a man. But what John is saying is anyone who denies that, anyone who denies that Jesus has come in the flesh as a man is from the spirit of the Antichrist. That, that's, that, that's, a, that's a heresy, that's, that's an error, and that's what these deceivers were teaching, denying the humanity of Jesus. So, I'm just gonna boil all this down and sum it up. Here is the accepted, orthodox understanding of the person of Jesus Christ. Very simply stated, it's this. He's one person. We think of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's three persons. Jesus is one person, but he exists in two natures, God and man. He has a divine nature, and he has a human nature. His divinity doesn't lessen his humanity. His humanity doesn't lessen his divinity. He is 100% God and 100% man. The Antichrist is the person that denies one or the other or both. The reason this is so important, friends, is because as we think of our Messiah, 
God himself is the only one who would have the ability to pay for the sins of a multitude of people. Only God can do that. No mere man can do that. But man and women, children, men are the ones who have the obligation to pay for their sins because we're the ones who sinned against God. We have the obligation, but only God has the ability. So the only sufficient Savior is one who is God and man at the same time. And that's who Jesus is, the God-man, fully capable to forgive you of all your sins and able then to represent you in his humanity, to stand in your place and then to offer up his body as a sacrifice for you so that you can belong to him. This is absolutely, this is, this is central to what it is to be a Christian. This is what the Catholics and Protestants and Eastern Orthodox, we all agree on this. The person of Jesus. And what John is saying here is you deny one or the other and you've got a big problem. And so here's what we hear, friends, very often in our world today. There are many roads that lead to God. There are all sorts of religions and if you just practice them as best as you can, you'll probably go to heaven because all religions are equal. Friends, that is fake news. That's not true. I mean, look at verse 23. Um, Yeah, verse 23. No one who denies the son has the father. The person who denies Jesus as Savior, as the God-man, does not have the Father. He who confesses the Son has the Father also. If you believe in Jesus, you have relationship with God. You deny Jesus, you don't. That's what John is saying. You can't have relationship with the Father apart from Jesus, no matter how well you practice whatever worldview or religion or self-help program you happen to be engaged in. If you're trying to know God apart from Jesus, You've been deceived. I mean, this is a hard thing to uphold in our day, I know, but what this is saying is that not all religions are equally true. Spiritual reality does not bend to our preferences. Just as there are non-negotiable physical laws in the universe, so there are non-negotiable spiritual laws in our universe. We don't have the freedom to make them up to manipulate them, to invent them in such a way that they go along with our preferences. Different views of God are not just different perspectives or different opinions. There are views of God that are right and there are views of God that are wrong. It's not saying that we get to heaven because we're right. No, I'm not saying that. But what John is saying is you, you, you have to have a proper understanding of who the Savior is. And ones who deny this are considered to be deceivers. Friends, this is one of the reasons why missions is just so absolutely important. It's why we're going to have a missions conference next week. There are millions of people in the world laboring under deception about how to know God and how to have relationship with him. They've been told that if they just try their hardest, they'll get to heaven. They've been told that if they worship Allah, they'll get to heaven. They've been told that if they meditate enough, they'll get to heaven. And this is all fake news. It's all lies. It's all deceit. 
I'm not saying that Muslims or those who practice other religions are bad people. No, we love them. We respect them. We don't want them persecuted. We don't want them discriminated against. We want to be their neighbors, their friends, and their coworkers. But that doesn't mean that we have to say that what everybody believes is equally true. That's not what John would have us believe. So come out to our missions conference as we talk about the efforts that are taking place not only from this church but in our denomination and throughout the world to share the message of the gospel with those who are under the deception of false religion. But that's what the deceivers believe. They deny the humanity of Jesus and the divinity of Jesus. Now, lastly, how do the deceivers behave? One last verse, looking at verse 19. How do deceivers behave? What John mentions is that they leave the church. They went out from us, he says, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. The the deceivers in the church that John is speaking to eventually left. I don't think they were kicked out or or disciplined of their own volition. They left. They were probably um, teaching these views that Jesus was not human, that Jesus was not divine. Um, And they found that they didn't have an audience and probably the people in this church were saying, you know, that doesn't really sound right. They received some resistance. They, They couldn't get a hearing. And so they left of their own volition. They went out from us. Now this, of course, is not to say that everybody who leaves a church is an antichrist. (laughs) I mean, plenty of people leave churches for very good reasons, and typically they join other churches and and worship there. But that doesn't seem to be the case here. These are people who have left the church for good. And what John says here is that this has happened for a reason, for a providential reason, to reveal something about them. Again, verse 19. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us but they went out here it is that it might become plain that they all are not of us it's like they they left the church so that it could become obvious so that it could become clear that these people were never part of us that they were never genuine christians that they never actually knew jesus as savior So here's what probably happened. These deceivers were probably participating in the life of the church. Maybe they took some membership vows of some sort. I don't know, but they were worshiping alongside uh, the believers in this church. And what John is saying here is, even although all that was going on, they were never Christians. They thought they were. They were trying to pretend that they were, but but they weren't. And, And the way we know this is not because they had a struggle with some sin, not not because they tripped up and made some mistakes, or not because they had doubts about the Bible, or not because they struggled with depression. That's not what made anybody think that they weren't Christians. What made John draw the conclusion that they weren't Christians is they left the church. They turned their back on God's people. They disassociated with Christ's bride. Friends, that is a very serious thing to do. 
I mean, if any of you are contemplating that, I sure hope that you'll come and talk to the elders, Pastor Brian or myself, because you're making a grand statement when you decide to leave the church. Now, again, I'm not saying leave the church to attend another. We've had plenty of people who have left New Life and they've gone to other churches, and while we're sorry to see them go, uh, we wish them the best and very happy that they're in other healthy churches where they're serving and worshiping. That's a good thing. Have no concerns about that. But I'm talking about people who leave the church and say, I'm done with the church. I'm finished. I'm not going back anywhere. And we had a person who, who did that many years ago here at New Life. A person left the church and he's never returned. Never really denied Christ, but never went back to a church. Years and years and years have gone by. And I don't take any joy in saying this, but if I'm going to follow what John says, my only conclusion can be that he was never a Christian, even though he was here for years. Never a Christian. Never really belonged to the people of God. It's a startling thing, but it's a serious thing that all of us should carefully consider as we think of the centrality of the church. They went out from us that it might become plain that they are not of us. So this brings up the question, does this mean we can lose our salvation? And the answer to that is no. Uh, no. A, a true Christian cannot lose his or her salvation. There's an abundance of scriptural testimony to this. Again, what I'm saying is that these people never were Christians, these who left but I'm going to base this in part on verse 21, last passage in, uh, last verse that we'll look at in this passage. He says, I write to you, I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. It's like John is making a distinction. He's saying, I, I know that there are these deceivers, these antichrists who don't know the truth, but you, my beloved children, members of this church, you're not like them. You know the truth, and that's why I'm writing to you. And as pastor of this church, I would say this. I am preaching to you new life, not because you don't know the truth, but because you do know the truth. You do know the truth. You know the gospel. You, you know Jesus. You belong to him. And I want to encourage you, friends, looking throughout Scripture, if there's one thing we can pick up, it's this. It's that God loves you a lot more than you love him. It's that God is more committed to your salvation than you are committed to your salvation. That God's grip on you is a whole lot stronger than your grip on him. That's the most encouraging thing that you could ever hear. That's what you need to be remembering when you feel like you're an awful bad Christian, when you've sinned one extra time than you anticipated. You need to remember that God has promised to finish the work that he has started in you, that he will sustain you to the end, that he is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before his glorious presence, that he who called you is faithful and he will do it. He will do it. And so there's a wonderful faithful promise to us in the scriptures. That's a large part of this gospel that we believe, friends. That it's not based on our perseverance, but on God's preservation of those who know him. 
So let's not misunderstand this text, friends. It's not saying we can lose our salvation. Uh, But it is saying that leaving the church is a serious thing. And that those who are deceiving the Antichrist influences in churches eventually get to the point where that's what they do. They leave the church. So, take encouragement, friends, in God's faithfulness to you. I assure you that that is not fake news. God is committed to you. God is committed to you to the very end. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for the warnings that we receive in it. Would you please help us, Father, as we seek to be discerning about the messages that we hear in our world, about who you are. Make us students of your word and encourage us, Father, to remain faithful to you, knowing that you are faithful to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.